Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. How does creativity work? Where does inspiration come from? What are the secrets of our most revered creators? How can we maximize our creative potential? Inspired, the new book from Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter Matt Richtel, is about the science of creativity, distilling an explosion of exciting new research from across the world, including insight from some of the world's great creators and deconstructing the, the authentic nature of creativity. Its biological and evolutionary origins, its deep connection to religion and spirituality, and the way it bubbles in each of us, urgent and essential, waiting to be tapped. Matt Richtel is a Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter, best-selling nonfiction and mystery author. He lives in San Francisco with his wife Meredith, a neurologist, and their two children. Uh, Matt Richtel, welcome back to the program. Pleasure. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so I wonder, um, the, the subtitle, Understanding Creativity, wh- where did this begin for you, this, well, this journey? Well, <laughs> um, I, I, I was thinking about that as you were going into your intro, and, I, and I've, I've been asked the question a couple of times, and I don't think I've fully understood the answer myself, and I was just really struck by something. Uh, can I tell you a story about Charles Schultz that yeah. I heard that may help yes. explain yes. how I got into this? Remember the Peanuts creator? Right. Well, some years ago, I uh, I had my own sort of <laughs> experience of discovering creativity. I, we can or don't have to go into that, but it led me to create a comic strip. And my the editor of my comic strip, which appeared in a handful of papers over the years, was the woman who edited Peanuts. And I asked for a story about Charles Schultz, and this is what she told me. She said that Charles Schultz would wake up in the morning and say, oh my gosh, I've got an idea for the perfect comic strip. This is it. And he would set about writing in a kind of semi-euphoric state. And he would finish it, and he'd turn it in, and he'd wake up the next morning, and he'd look at it and go, you know, that wasn't quite it. Wait a second, I've got it. And he would begin again. And when I really trace my interest in this back, I think I'm interested in where the creative inspiration comes from and what science tells us about how it works, who executes on it, who doesn't execute on it. Um, And and I didn't just want to write a self-help book. I wanted to really get into the science, and that's what happened. Yeah, that's an extraordinary story. Uh, I, uh, that struck me as I was reading the book uh, about Charles Schultz. Um, gets into a lot of aspects of creativity, right? I do want to uh, have you tell your story a, a little bit. Um, and it, 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 as you write, it comes down to, and you found this with many other creators, learning to, I guess, find your own voice and to trust your own voice, right? Yeah, I mean, the, I guess the biggest, the biggest takeaway among many that I have is that creativity is not the province of the genius, the isolated, um, you know, Hollywood cliche who suddenly understands the world in a way no one ever has. Creativity is in everyone, and it's really a reflection of the individuality of a person Uh, coming to life in some way. And to truly be creative doesn't require 
an act of genius. It requires tapping into that unique version of you, and science will bear that out. Uh, often, I think you found it uh, comes from pain. Yeah, I mean, the relationship of creativity to pain has been much written about. Um, I would say that the role of pain, from what I can understand, is not precisely how it's been characterized. It's often characterized as someone experiences pain trying to create. I would say that I've witnessed people experience pain trying to allow themselves to be who they are and feel feelings um, and have ideas that go against the rigid nature of, of the way things are done. But then the actual process of creating the research will show is very pleasure-filling. It, it is unburdening. It makes people happy. You've experienced these these things. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us. Uh, you know, we won't spend the whole hour on you, but uh, um, but, but uh, you you had a collapse, and then it's interesting some of the lessons you learned after that. Yeah. Um, so first of all, this is not <laughs> this is not a <laughs> memoir, and uh, and so please, uh, you know, for all those listening, I'm, I'm not trying to be narcissistic. I think that I understood. I, I my experience gave me an insight into what other people. Um, Experience and let me set the stage for a little bit with the science. So, creativity, the science shows, requires people to let them to to give themselves permission to hear a bunch of different ideas, and ideas that don't necessarily go with the structure of society. This sounds like it's true on its face. After all, um, if you're breaking the rules, you have to think outside of them. And just, do you remember the book um, Nabok- uh, Lolita by Nabokov? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Will you, or is it too, is it too, uh, do you, will you get red-faced describing to the listeners what it's about? Um, I, I, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. But, it, but it's, I mean, it's, it's outside the bounds, right, is, is what's going on. It's, it's, a, it's a story of a guy who falls in love with a young girl. And we think of it as a great piece of literature, but it required Nabokov to even have the thought and write an entire novel about something so outside the box. Now, if you think about creativity, and I'm, com- I'm going to come to your answer about me. I just want to put it in some context. If you think about the apps that people create, the television shows or streaming shows they create, the songs they create. If you think about Elvis Presley or the Beatles or Lizzo, all those people had thoughts and expressions that went outside the, no- the, the norms of the day. And that requires a, it's either courage or permission. So I grew up in neighboring Colorado, in fact, Utah is my, uh, don't get mad, I think this is a compliment, my second favorite place to be after Colorado. <laughs> yeah, we'll take that. So similar. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and I grew up in, a, in Boulder, small town, big dad, physically and literally, he was a judge, 
uh, and a law professor, and I thought, oh, man, that's the kind of person you're supposed to be, and I was a jock, and so I thought that my friends who were all state this or that, was that was how I was supposed to be. And when I got into my 20s, and so, so I kind of like fashioned myself as a strong, silent type, and I was ne- neither of those things. <laughs> and I really came undone. I was working at a small newspaper, and I had a collapse and, and got depressed and anxious and, and was a mess. And when I came out the other side of that, I learned three or four lessons that turn out to be very key in allowing you to express yourself. The first is complete humility. I feel I have the capacity to judge no person, but I also feel like I can be judged by no person. Why is that relevant to creativity? Well, the people who are creative wind up people who think about themselves as being worthy of expressing their ideas, but not so worried about what other people think that they can't express those ideas. Lesson one here, um, can I tell an Einstein story? Yes. And I belong in no story myself that has Einstein in it. But can I just quickly <laughs> hit on a point here? You bet. Einstein, uh, great story about Einstein I heard. He's, uh, <laughs> he, he says to a colleague, hey, I figured it out. I got the unified field theory. And his colleague says, well, that's, that's a wonderful theory, <laughs> Albert. But under that theory, the universe, as, it, as we know it, can't exist. And he was wrong. Well, what creators are known for is not so much quality, but great creators are known for quantity. And a lot of that comes from humility. You throw out ideas, and you don't have to be perfect. And you throw out more ideas, and you try them. And that is, a, that is why one of the core aspects of what I discovered was I'm no better than anyone, but I'm no worse than anyone. So my ideas have a, deserve a shot in the world like anybody else. And then another thing that I discovered, and it's very, very similar, is permission. I can say things without feeling judged because I'm not a bad person. I'm not a better person than anybody else, but I'm not a bad person. And I just want to ask you, can I ask you what, do you do, you do creative pursuits outside of the radio what else do you do boy i do you know play some tennis um i don't know you'd consider creative outlets tennis certainly do you ever have instincts to create things that you don't let yourself do uh i suppose maybe you just don't get around to you know i'd like to maybe write some more you know or write but you feel like time is not time there's not time yeah yeah Mm -hmm. well when I look back over, so, so after this period, I kind of started to create explosively. I created a syndicated comic strip. I've written 10 books. I write some songs that, um, fortunately, uh, uh, we will not be playing here today because <laughs> everyone would turn off their radio. And I've had really good fortune in the New York Times. And I will tell just one quick story to underscore um, the kind of decision process that creators sometimes make um, that was a signal to me that I, had, that I had found my voice. In about 2000, the New York Times hired me, and they told me, I lived in San Francisco, and they told me that I needed to move to New York. Well, what I had discovered in this process was that I had learned to hear my voice 
and not be so subject to those external voices. Remember the ones that would say, you should be like, I don't know, a big law politician person, or you should be playing second base for the Yankees, or whatever the thing was. I'd gotten rid of those voices, and I was afraid if I went to New York and sat in that newsroom, that smoking cauldron of ambition, (laughs) that I would be destroyed again. (laughs) And so I said no. And they said, okay, well, we'll give you a, a little time in San Francisco. And a year later, they said, move to San Francisco or you're fired. And by now I was at the New York Times, which is ostensibly the thing everybody wants to do if they're a young journalist. And I flew to New York and I pleaded with an editor there and said, hey, I'm happy. You're happy. They said, absolutely. I said, can I stay in San Francisco? They said, no way. You're coming back to New York October 1st, 2001, or you're fired. And I faced a reckoning. And on October 1st, 2001, I was sitting at my desk in San Francisco waiting for the phone to ring. By then, I'd met the woman who had become my wife. I was very happy. And here I remain. And I think by virtue of listening to my voice and not what was inside the, necessarily the New York Times, I went on to win a Pulitzer Prize. I had a number of books come out. I learned to listen to me, but it forced some tough choices. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, I wonder if you talk briefly on voice. We get on some other things uh, after a break, but um, you go on to talk about Taylor Swift, and she had uh, an experience. You talk about a documentary about her, Miss Americana. I'm just going to quote her from your book. Uh, This is Taylor Swift. When you're living for the approval of strangers, and that's where you derive all your joy and fulfillment, one bad thing can cause everything to crumble. You go on to say the film explores how and when that crumble happened, and then how she came out of that. Yeah, and, and her story is so consistent with ones I heard over and over again where um, people, people who find true happiness in creating allow themselves to trust their own instincts because the, because the outside voices, they're not cruel, but what they are is not in sync with you. And maybe an even more telling version of that in the book is a creator named Rhiannon Giddens. If you don't know her name, she's sort of an up-and-coming musical, extraordinary talent who, um, I, whose creative journey I chronicle in the book. And Rhiannon faced this decision. She was being shaped, given her great talent, by an industry that had her on the Country Music Awards and was essentially setting her on a path to stardom. And she discovered herself miserable because she wasn't hearing the, the, the music that was authentic to her. And she turned away from what many people would associate with creativity, essentially fame and riches, although she's found a version of that on her own path. It's worth reading her story because it's such an authentic version of what Taylor Swift describes, finding your voice and trusting it because the outside voice will destroy you. Well, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, I do want to talk a little bit more about Rhiannon Giddens. Um, I think she's my hers is my favorite story in the in the book. Um, just um, just fascinating. Of course, many many others uh, mentioned the book and uh, a lot of science in the book too. Science of creativity. The book's called Inspired. Subtitle: Understanding Creativity: A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul. The author is Pulitzer Prize winner Matt Richtel, and uh, we will have much more following this break. 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Matt Richtel. He's Pulitzer Prize winning uh, reporter for the New York Times. His new book, a uh, fascinating book, Inspired is the title, Understanding Creativity, subtitle. Uh, Matt Richtel sets out to understand creativity, conversations with many creators and with scientists, and uh, a bit of the book is his own uh, story as well. Um, uh, so, Matt Richtel, you mentioned Rhiannon Giddens. Uh, I've just, uh, as I mentioned, I found hers the most fascinating story in the in the whole book. Um, what if you tell what us? Did I? Uh, maybe tell us um, a bit about her her background. There's a <laughs> there's a story where she, by crying out, saves her grandmother from shooting her grandfather with with a shotgun. Uh, I guess she's being raised by her grandfather and grandmother, right? Yeah. So she's raised she's raised in the South, and she's. Um She's raised, she, she is a, I guess, I guess a mutt, you would say. I mean, I would say that of many people in this country. She, her, her father is white, her mother is black, her mother's um, family were, was enslaved not so long ago. Her black maternal grandparents um, ha- have dealt with terrible, terrible racism, and they become very rigid, very loving, but very rigid in a lot of ways. Um, for instance, um, you have to behave. They, they teach you to behave a certain way because your life could be at risk if you um, say the wrong thing or look the wrong way. Um, and and their father comes from a place of great love and, and art, and his family in some ways rejects him because he marries a black woman. The, the black woman who is, is Rhiannon Giddens and uh, her sister's mother um, ultimately comes out, is lesbian, um, and it adds yet another twist to this. Rhiannon and her sister are very bright. They, um, they are in some rough um, areas, um, and then they're invited into some really swanky schools, and they begin to see a very complicated world. Um, all the while, Rhiannon has an, an angelic-like voice. And the reason I mention this is it has to do... I, the reason I chose Rhiannon's story as maybe the most central in a book that has a whole bunch of creators, from Judd Apatow to Steve Kerr to Nobel-winning scientists and, and others. The reason that Rhiannon anchored this book for me is she illustrates so many terrific points, and one of them has to do with the breadth of perspective that creators bring to the world. Um, I, I'd like to hit on maybe my... There, there's a lot of studies in here that really took me aback, but this one really got me, and it has to do with what creators physically see. Um, can I speed ahead to that, and I'll connect yeah, it to Rhiannon? definitely. Um, so... There's this study that takes, and I'll explain why I'm bringing this up in, in her context in a minute. It, it, this study shows what creators physically see, not what they see in their imaginations, but what they physically see. And this would be true of, um, of physicists or, or technologists, entrepreneurs, musicians. Um, University of California at Santa Barbara, they take a bunch of 
a cross-section of people, and they give them a test to see how creative these people are. And these creativity tests generally look at how many ideas a person can come up with and uh, based on, like, a starting point and how well people elaborate on those ideas and come up with alternatives to them. And And the study ranks the study subjects, the subjects, based on their creativity, and so has a big group of people who are creative or less creative, and then sets those people down in front of computers 17 inches from the screen and shows them a bunch of images. And those images are abstract or less abstract, and sophisticated eye-tracking software explores where the people are looking and how long they spend looking. And lo and behold, creators are able to see, literally see more on the screen and spend more time on those images than people with a more rigid or whimsical view, a less curious view of the world, if you will. What's so telling about this is that creators not only have the capacity to give themselves permission to let thoughts in, they actually are letting more information into their brains. And that is what winds up happening for many raised with a broad perspective of the world. They are accustomed to seeing many ideas and allowing them to be valid. Yeah, uh, uh, that's, uh, that's very telling, isn't it? Um, but uh, it hap- I, I guess it potentially could happen to any of us. It, it can happen, and what, what the reverse can happen, too. You can see that people in a chaotic environment may hew to one idea or the next um, instead of allowing themselves to see more broadly. And there's another example in the book of Steve Kerr, the coach of the Warriors, and I don't know in Utah, is he seen as, uh, are, are people feeling uh, angry at the Warriors right now? Is that how it works? Uh, no, I think we're, I think we're, <laughs> we haven't faced the Warriors uh, in recent memory in the playoffs, uh, so, you know. Okay, because I make, this yeah. is not, uh, you know, I don't want to create a, uh, a Warriors jazz divide. We can love all people. Um, uh, but, but Steve Kerr's dad was assassinated. Um, his dad was, so I spent time with Steve Kerr, uh, for the book, uh, writing about his approach to basketball, but also writing about his approach to ideas. And he was raised by a guy who was the president of American University in Beirut and a scholar who tried to think about bringing peace to the Middle East and was assassinated, uh, in a jihad by people who didn't want peace in the Middle East. And it could, it's easy to see how Steve Kerr could have become very rigid after that. Um, in fact, among the most haunting stories that's just a small piece in this book, but to underscore how rigidity could happen, when he played at the University of Arizona, the Arizona State fans used to taunt him about his father. And I've gotten to know Kerr pretty well, and his, he is such an open-minded human being. And what wound up happening for him is he began to try to understand the world in a broader fashion. Um, I'm going to cite some science here that on its face is probably, a, well, can I get into the God science? Yeah, yeah sure, yeah. Um, so so I've, been, I've, I've been trying to 
Um, I, I want to pause and, and just try to anchor where we are in this because I'm throwing out so much information, and let me try to make it a little more linear. I start with this idea, what is creativity, where does it come from, and I'm making it sound bold and courageous and, and happy-making, and it is all of those things. Um, and the book starts with the idea that there's a lot of promise and this is a moment of hope, but there's a lot of stuff that interferes with our ability to be creative. And so if I just pause where we are in this conversation, I want to say that, that all of the attributes I'm describing have obstacles in front of them. And the obstacles come in the form of rigidity and fear, and there's lots of good research to back that up. I want to move my way up to the God research because it's, it's powerful. But I think maybe to set the stage for it, I would tell you maybe my second most favorite piece of research in here. It's the vomit research. Can I do that? <laughs> yes. So you've got – here I am pitching to you and to myself and to the world the idea that creativity is in us all. It's a, there's an act of permission that it comes from the subconscious. We haven't quite gotten into that yet. But there's also plenty of research that shows why people don't want to get into this stuff. And probably the best piece of research that I came across is the vomit research. And it goes like this. Researchers ask a bunch of people how they feel about creativity, and they all say, love it. Who doesn't, love, who doesn't want to be creative? Who doesn't want to hire a creative employee? And then the researchers subject these study subjects to an implicit bias, te uh, implicit bias test. These are tests designed to figure out what the subconscious really feels, not what people say. Lo and behold, the researchers discover that on a subconscious basis, the very kinds of people who say they love creativity secretly associate creativity with vomit, toxins, and poison. Now, I just want to ask you, what's your guess as to what that's about? Uh, well, I guess we're scared, right? What strikes you as so scary about creativity? Um, I don't know. It seems like maybe you're going over an edge somehow. It's maybe not going to end up so well. Yeah, there's, there's a possibility. Stuff, yeah. And there's more, which is that creativity puts you over the edge. It means risk, which means it may not go so well. But there's yet an even, even bigger catch. If it does go well, you have to change, and the world has to change around you. Creativity means disruption, and it, it's, it's a, such a strong phrase, but it even means death, metaphorically and literally. For instance, here you have Elon Musk coming up with, or a bunch of people coming up with ideas for electric cars, and we see so much benefit from that, and especially when they self-park. Um, but when you've got when, when you're invested as a company or as an employee in an, in an old-school uh, fossil fuel-driven, uh, no pun intended, company, that is really problematic. There are lots of jobs and lots of livelihoods and lots of investments and, and lots of individual car owners tied to the old way of doing things. 
it's very scary when new ideas come up. It's scary as an individual because of the risk, and it's scary as a society because of the change. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, so if you feel that way, if you feel on a subconscious level afraid, it can be hard to tap in to those um, new ways of thinking. And that's one of the core ideas. The way that plays out on a big societal level is shown to us through another study about, um, about religion. And I want to be really cautious here because on its face, the first few sentences of this will seem like it's anti-religion or anti-God, and it is actually not that. So just please no angry cards and letters. Um, uh, or send what? Send them to the station, not me. <laughs> well, what do you? How do you want to roll on that? Uh, yeah, we 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 can we can send them to um, KUER, our, our kind of our rival station in Salt Lake. Yeah, <laughs> that's see that that's yeah. an original thought. Yeah. Um, so the very researchers who do the toxin vomit study say they're curious what happens when religion and creativity mix. Now, there's a big section in this book about the role of, of religion in actually helping define creativity, and I won't go into it so much, but this particular study found, and again, big asterisk till I explain it all, nobody get upset yet, found that people who are deeply religious and have a, uh, uh, faith in a monotheistic God can experience limitations in their creativity. Now, when you peel back what the research really shows... Because Sistine Chapel, a million trillion examples of religious of, of creativity around religion um, and by religious people, what it really shows is for people who have a rigid world view, and not and not everybody by any stretch who is religious or has faith in God has that. But if you have a rigid world view, it can be hard to acknowledge ideas outside that world view. By contrast, if you believe in a God who, said, who, who gives you permission to create and explore the world, then there's no tension there. But if you believe in a God that says there's only one way to live, and you must follow these rules all the time, it can be very hard to see ideas outside of that. Uh, so, uh, but, but there is a, there's a further connection, I think, right? Sorry, explain what you mean by that. I mean, uh, you're saying it's uh, religion doesn't completely suppress creativity, right? It and absolutely it can, doesn't completely but, suppress religion. Yeah. I mean, uh, creativity. It depends. The, the real lesson is, does your view of religion put you in such a position that any ideas outside the structure of that religion are are either a moral to think about uh, or uh, are, are not okay to consider. And in those cases, it's, it's not really about religion or God at all. It's just about how limited you want to make your access to information. Remember we were talking about what people see? Yeah. If you were to, if you were to cut off 
part of the world because you said, my worldview says I'm really not allowed to see or acknowledge that information. By definition, it limits the number of colors you can paint with on your palette or ingredients you can cook with in your kitchen if you want to use a metaphorical example. So, so really it depends how strict your view of, of the rules of the religion are. I see. Yeah. So it, it depends. Yeah. It just depends. If you, if you go, I mean, look, there's a trillion iterations of religion in this country and in this world, and I know many pa- pastors, and, and, and actually I've gotten to know um, Utah very well from prior books. Um, so just speaking there, I've, I've seen many different ways of approaching the church or a church that give people permission to explore. And those people can experience great creativity. Those who belong to a place who says, Your, the, these are the rules, you may not think outside of them, will experience limited ability to see different ideas. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back, uh, we want to talk, you know, much more to talk about. Um, and the, the book is Inspired, Understanding Creativity. The author is a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, reporter, New York Times reporter, Matt Richtel. Uh, we'll have more following this break. You're listening to Access U. I'm Tom Williams. We reached our last segment uh, with Matt Richtel. His uh, new book is Inspired, Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and uh, the Soul. We have about 12 minutes uh, left with Matt Richtel here. Uh, for those who don't remember, Matt Richtel is author of A Deadly Wandering. It's about a deadly case of uh, texting driving. It took place right here in Cache Valley. Uh, also an elegant uh, defense about our immune system. Uh, the new book, Inspired. Um, so, Matt Richtel, this really struck me, um, and, it, and this had resonance with me, um, a professor, I think this is Boston College, John Dacey, uh, tell us yeah. about, about his, uh, the, the, he had a class on creativity, and so tell us what the final project is. So, um is just remind me because I've oh yes the, the college um, he, he's, professor who says write about anything yeah do a project shows me you've learned a lot that's all he says yeah. okay <laughs> so this this comes under a uh, uh, a chapter about where uh, why young people start to lose creativity there's a an idea called the fourth grade slump and what it shows is that before young people are in fourth grade they actually come up with more creative ideas than after fourth grade. And the reason for that, we can, I can get into the science of that shortly, but the reason for that is because people are um, starting to become very rule-based and less imaginative. And John Dacey wants to see uh, just how scary uh, it is to be create, creative. And I believe, is this college or master's? Can you remind me? I think this is college. Yeah. It's college. So. John Dacey's a college professor, and he says, you can write about anything you want. This is an, he's, a, he's a creativity scholar. And his students go nuts, and they go, what? No, no, don't do that. Tell me what to do. What are the rules? And this is part of a chapter in the book that explores how we lose our creativity. Um, and, and what winds up happening is that for very good reason, we crave rules. We're taught rules early on. I have 
a 13-year-old and 11-year-old. And so these phrases um, are familiar to me. Um, you know, don't run in the street. Don't pick your nose and eat it. Don't eat that off the floor. Stay on your side of the back seat. Does that all? Mm-hmm. Do the, you remember those? Yes. And little by little, what happens is we begin to um, get indoctrinated into a world of very well-meaning rules that save our lives or, or spare us harm, and we begin to say no before we say yes. We filter the world through the lens of what doesn't work before what does work. And that, is, that becomes a real issue. And by the way, that gets backed up in school, right? Here are the rules. Here's the test. Uh, don't color outside the lines. And actually, if you, there's a scholar in the book who says, who says um, go look at pictures of kids. Um, they, they color outside the lines for years, and then they get mortified when they color outside the lines. And if you think about that as a simple metaphor, when I interview the entrepreneurs who you know, came up with ideas and went on to make millions, that wasn't their aim, but they, they had ideas. When you talk about the... Um, you know, Bono, who I talked to, in, who I spoke to at one point, but not for this book, and, and do write about him in this book, they are people who learn to actually deliberately color outside the lines. And when you're looking for rules, like John Dacey's students were, it can be very hard to color outside the lines. He just said, make whatever lines you want, and everybody freaked out. <laughs> yeah, including kids crying in his office, would <laughs> getting emotional about it. Yeah. Yeah. You think, you think, yeah, here, write anything you want, and it leads to sobbing. Yeah, which indicates the, the power of uh, those rules is that rigidity that we, I guess, place on kids. Um, I wondered, um, so uh, I guess the question would... Uh, Wait, can we, I just say, can yeah. I interrupt for a second? Yeah, go ahead. Because I'm wondering if, sorry, let, can I color outside the line? Yeah, yes. Um, I, I think, I think I'm, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that there is a way to do both as a parent and as a kid. And there was one other insight. Um, well, well, first of all, the, the way to do, to, to have both is that, that you can give kids rules, but also let them expre- encourage them to express ideas, whether it's inside your home or um, in their schoolwork, that being quote-unquote perfect may not be the aim. And it actually may be, um, it may discourage um, creativity. And the, the, the one, uh, one phrase that really struck out to me from a, stuck out to me from the scholar in this section is he says, sometimes parents don't want their kids to say things that are outside the bounds. And his reason was because it comes to look like a bad reflection on the parents. The parents are actually embarrassed that somehow they've created a kid that says something that's wrong, and it, it, it humiliates the parents. That's a really dangerous way to think if you want creativity in your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can understand the discomfort, right, of the parents. A hundred percent. So you've got to get outside your own comfort zone to help, to help your kids, I guess. Uh, that, that's exactly, exactly right. I think that if any chapter I'd really recommend for parents, it's not one that says let your children run wild, but rather how to strike a balance there. Mm. So I wonder, uh, and you do talk about this in the book, uh, maybe list a, a few ways, uh, how can we get past creative blocks? How can we, you know, the average person, be more creative? Yeah, I, I think the, the best thing, the best 
single best way I can see to do this is to allow some mind wandering in your life. And I'll, I'll show what I mean by way of an exercise. And um, don't worry, this is not meant to get filthy. But I want to ask you, before you go to bed, I, I, I can go first if you're not comfortable here, but do you have any, like, fantasies where your mind roams free before you go to bed? Yeah, sometimes, yeah. Are you comfortable sharing any of them? Uh, I, I honestly can't remember. <laughs> really, I'm okay. not even, right, I can't remember right well, now. Here's ones yeah. I've heard. I, there's a great uh, soprano for the uh, Pasadena Opera. Uh, she tells me she often sees herself flying. When I was a kid, for years, I would imagine myself um, in a... Uh, in a sporting goods store, and I got to buy whatever I wanted, which just sounded so exciting, and I would walk down the aisles and fill my cart. Um, I've heard a a million different examples of what people think about. Why do I mention that? Because it's one of the times in our day, it's one of the few times for a lot of people where their mind wanders without judgment. And mind-wandering is where your brain is letting ideas bubble up without judgment. What the research will show is, well, I'll give you a specific. Again, at the University of California, Santa Barbara, scientists take uh, a bunch of uh, scholars, physicists and writers and artists who are known to be creative, and they ask them to track what they're doing over the course of a day when they come up with a creative idea. I'm so sorry. I just sneezed. I may have blown everybody's radio. I apologize. Um, so, uh, so they they are you still with me? Yes. Did I destroy the radio no, tower? No, we're we're we've survived it. Yes, we're intact. Okay. Yeah. So they, um, they 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 ask people what they're doing when they have a creative thought, and lo and behold, twenty percent of the time when people have their most creative thought of the day. It's when they're doing something mundane or something else other than than focusing on what the the problem they're trying to solve. And the, the, the researcher says to me, how often can you be the very best at something you're not trying to do? And what the research shows is when your mind is allowed to kind of wander and not judge and ideas are flowing through it, a lot of good stuff can happen creatively, but the research also shows people don't let, like to let their minds wander because it often goes to worry, or people feel unproductive, and so they direct their minds. I promise you this. As someone who's experienced a lot of this in my life and given myself permission, those moments of letting your brain just wander over new terrain is where a ton of ideas come from. You've got to let it happen. Mm. That, that is a big block. You just mentioned it. Uh, sometimes you feel like, well, you know, letting your mind wander uh, equals laziness. I'm not being productive. Yes, um, that's, ex- that's exactly right. And it's the opposite of laziness. And if you think about all the time and you, ha- you have in your day, it's a habit. Um, that you can add in. I do want to say that here technology plays a very mixed role. On one hand, it can so easily distract, and I know this because for whatever reason lately, I've been playing free online poker. Um, I think it's because I've got a book launch and something going on at the New York Times, a big series on adolescent mental health, and like I'm just trying to find some, you know, I don't know, some dead mind time. Um, but I can also tell that that's time that 
I'm not standing in the kitchen making dinner and not doing anything or going on a walk and not doing anything. And I know from personal experience, I promise everyone listening here today, those times when you let your mind wander are so rich with creative opportunity. Uh, we just have a couple minutes, but I, I, I want to make sure we treat that technology. Is it overall, is it uh, good or bad for uh, I forgot to give the second half of that. Yeah, Thank yeah, you yeah, for asking. The other piece of it is I will make a case, and I do in this book, that we are in the most creative period in human history. And what the science bears out is that creativity often simply comes from having a congregation of people who cooperate and who, um, who compete with ideas and collaborate. And the book starts in Jerusalem for good reason. For many, the, the center of creation or, uh, and creativity itself. But, you know, what was interesting about Jerusalem is it had a population of 500,000. That was big for the time. It was a lot of people in the year zero talking about these core ideas. Um, at least on our calendar, the year zero. And similarly, you've had these places, Florence and, uh, and, and Rome and Paris and Russia and Harlem and Silicon Valley and go down the list. And, and now with technology, you could say everything is Jerusalem. You can talk to people all over the world, and you can get ideas and, and tools from all over the world. So even though technology can distract, it can enable technology, excuse me, creativity in huge ways. We just have one minute left. What, what's the biggest takeaway you'd like uh, readers, listeners to, to take away? Biggest takeaway, full stop. Creativity is in you. We haven't even gotten into the biology of it. This book is not a self-help book, but if you are interested in, in a, a bunch of essays that explain the science and the experience of creativity, this, I hope, will help people tap into the joy of creativity that is in all of us. Well, good place to end the conversation. Inspired, Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul uh, is the new book from Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter Matt Richtel. It's out and available now. Matt Richtel, a pleasure as always. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening today. We'll uh, go out. Uh, uh, our monthly uh, commentary from Tanya Gibson, She Goes On, is next. Spring is, well, springing. A bit. Finally? I want to say it's late to the springtime party, but I know that isn't true. Every year, I think our spring has sprung later than normal, and then I look back, or read back, over notes and journals of previous years and see that no, we're right on track. Again. Even as May starts rounding the calendar corner, we're still right on track. That late snow in April makes me a bit irritable, even when that late snow makes our annual trek to Moab downright heaven on earth. That late snow in April makes me irritable, even after winter so mild, I know we're in drought trouble again. That late snow in April makes me green-faced envious of others' postings of blossoms and spring color amid our month of brown covered in a burst of January white. We went recently to Moab, there early enough in the season before the town was overrun by tourists, of which, I guess technically, we are counted among, though I'm loath to admit it. I adore Moab a great deal and have since childhood when I first started visiting. We try to go every year, and this year a trip to Canyonlands was on the books. The temperature was gorgeous, the red rocks stunning, the crowds limited to non-existent at every stop. 
We hiked to Mesa Arch after sunrise, but before the sun crept high. The light perfectly highlighting the underneath of the arch, making it glow a vibrant orange. When we rounded the bend and got our first glimpse, there were a half a dozen people already there. By the time we wound our way close, we were practically alone. The canyon, straight below us for miles. The crack in the arch detailing to us how precarious nature really is. We stayed for a while, vacillating between sweatshirts and no, just soaking in the view. On the short hike back to the car, new life was everywhere. Desert blooms abundant. And then it started to hit me. I started clogging up, eyes weeping, skin itching, allergies. Foiled every time. Springtime is a favorite. When the earth wakes back up and I start to remember that winter won't last forever, especially when we can escape our northern climes and remember what the sun feels like on our skin a bit earlier than our normal. The sun beating down on our faces have always been a long-gone memory by winter's end, and looking at an April full of clouds and not yet warm can make me feel restless and anxious for the flowers to start popping, a signal that beginning is near. Except, well, for the allergies. Those seem to pop up even when the ground is hard and white. I know, logically, that things must be blooming somewhere and pollen is a friend of spring winds even when they are blowing yet another storm towards us, but it's always a surprise when my sneezes take up residence a full month before the mountains surrounding me turn green. This year, I thought I had finally conquered my decades-long battle with hay fever. March ended without a sniffle and April began without itchy eyes. And then on that short hike back from Mesa Arch, we passed juniper trees and blooming cacti and small desert flowers, and by the time I had settled into the passenger seat, I was reaching for the tissues. I kept telling myself it was a fluke and I'd be fine, but by the time we reached my parents' home further south, I could no longer play the is it COVID or allergies game as my red nose made it abundantly clear. Allergies. Throughout the next week, instead of familiar walks with my family, I lay on my childhood bed. Instead of washing our laundry and hanging it on the line, I was folding it dirty, replacing the clean in our suitcase. Instead of enjoying every bite of food I missed since the beginning of the pandemic, I was grabbing anything green chili right and left, hoping for my sinuses to hurry and unclog. Okay, I might have enjoyed that part. Every spring, I think we're late to the party. Every April, I look at the season of brown and know I've had enough. Every year, my allergies come roaring back, assuring me, all is how it's always been. I'm eyeing opening day of our farmer's market. After that, typically cold morning, warmth moves quickly until I blink and summer is fully here. This is Tanya Gibson for She Goes On.